Welcome to Passive Real Estate Investing, the show where busy people like you learn how to build substantial passive income while creating wealth for the long term. And now, here's your host, Marco Santarelli. Welcome to Passive Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Marco Santarelli, and welcome to another episode. I have an interesting episode today because I have what I'll refer to as a special guest, but he's more than a guest. He's actually a past client. And this guy has really impressed me. The reason is, is because he set out to acquire real estate, build a portfolio. He set some goals. He made a plan. And not only did he execute on his plan, but he stuck to it. And he stuck to it in a way that he actually surprised me. I got an email earlier this month, being January, with the subject line, just wanted to say a huge thanks, huge all in caps. And I was a little taken back. At first, I thought, oh, it's a spam email. And I was about to delete it. But then I recognized his name. And I opened it up. And he basically said, I want to reach out to you just to say thank you for all your help, guidance, and advice you've given me in the few years back. It's been absolutely invaluable. And that's literally, quote unquote, right from his email. So one thing led to another, and I wanted to get him on the show here to share his experience and a little bit about him and how he got started and why he chose the path he chose and how he built his portfolio. And, you know, everybody's got advice and some wisdom and knowledge, and I figured it would be invaluable for a lot of people to learn from him. So his name is Anton Ivanov, and I believe I pronounced that correctly, but he is a real estate investor, an entrepreneur. He has built a 35-unit rental portfolio that's spread out across four states. And mind you, he lives in California, so these are not in California. He's also the founder of an incredible app called Deal Check. It is dubbed the leading real estate analysis software, and it is used by over 28,000 investors and agents to quickly analyze and compare investment properties. And I actually was part of that beta test when he was developing Developing it and it is excellent. It is excellent. I really enjoy using it and it's outstanding. So if you live off a, an iPhone or a smart device, I really suggest putting that on your device because it's useful. So with that, I want to welcome Anton to the show. Anton, welcome. Hi, Marco. It's great to be here and thanks again for having me. Well, believe me, it's my pleasure because you really, really impressed me how you built up a 35-unit rental portfolio when you had essentially zero when we first started. Now, you you know, granted, I don't want to take your story. I want you to tell everyone about your story, but you sure. inherited one property, I believe, from your family and that was kind of the uh, starting point. So with that interesting story, why don't we start off by you telling us a little bit about you and how you got started with real estate investing. Sure. So I'm actually originally from Russia and I immigrated with my family to Southern California to San Diego in uh, 2000, I believe it was. So I was in high school and uh, graduated high school. And actually right after that, I joined the U.S. Navy active duty and I served for six years for the American Navy and kind of a long service there. Unfortunately, my parents passed away and they left me with a condo. They kind of lived in here in San Diego. And that was actually my first experience with real estate. You know, I was young. I was in my early 20s and I basically became a landlord when I least expected it. And I actually was stationed in Japan, you know, on a Navy warship. So, you know, I almost sold it. I almost sold it right when I inherited it because I didn't know anything about real estate. I never owned a property. Frankly, I was a little scared of what all of that entails, as you can imagine. But I'm really glad I didn't. So I did keep it. And for a few years, that was the only kind of real estate investment, if you will, I had. So it produced very little cash flow, as you can imagine. It's Southern California. So, you know, prices here are extremely high and rents are not 
comparable to that. So from an investment perspective, it was not a great deal at all. And that kind of didn't give me a lot of encouragement. You no, know, it was, you know, this asset that I owned that really didn't generate much income for me. But it did give me some insight into being a landlord and dealing with remote property management. Because again, I was in Japan, this property was in California, so obviously I used the property manager to handle all the day-to-day operations, leasing, you know, maintenance, upkeep, and all of that. So I guess I went a little bit backwards than a lot of people. You know, most people buy a property and then become a landlord. I almost skipped the whole buying process the first time and just got thrown into being a landlord. But I think that experience with, you know, managing a remote property or supervising a property manager who is managing my property for me really kind of set the foundation for, you know, what came forth later and allowed me to kind of see what it's like, see what real estate is all about, and obviously develop some systems and processes and expectations with how to effectively manage rental properties when you're not around. Mm-hmm. So that kind of how I got started. Fast forward a few years, I got out of the Navy and I moved back to San Diego with my wife and kind of settled here into a civilian career. And, you know, I built up a little equity portfolio up to that point. I was, you know, buying stocks and some index funds and kind of diligently putting money away for retirement like a lot of people are. But I started wondering, you know, are there alternative solutions? Can I get better returns on my money elsewhere? And obviously I had this property which was not producing great returns, but It was an alternative investment method, and I kind of got interested a little more in real estate. I started reading a lot of books. I read Bigger Pockets, uh, which is a great resource, and I was, you know, kind of warming up to it, so to speak. And at that point, I also started looking at local properties in San Diego just to see what the market is like, you know, what kind of investment properties are available locally, how much money can I make. And what I basically realized very quickly is that my local market, at least for somebody like me who didn't have many connections, who didn't have a lot of money, to invest at that point, the San Diego was not really going to work out. The prices here were ridiculously high, you know, 300, 400 plus was kind of the minimum to get any property. That's thousand. And, you know, the returns that you got on those properties were fairly low. So, you know, most of the time I couldn't even find a cash flowing investment uh, if I just scanned the MLS. So that got me thinking, well, what can I do? You know, I still want to invest in real estate, but you know, maybe the local market is not the right solution. And I started looking at other markets um, and a lot of, you know, other strategies for how investors buy out-of-state properties. And that's actually how I found out about turnkey investments and connected with you and Narada for the first time. So, you know, I looked at turnkeys and what I kind of realized that is they can be a great opportunity for somebody like me who wants to invest out of state in kind of these cheaper, better cash flowing markets, but doesn't really have a lot of connections. I don't have a local team. Uh, On top of that, I had a full time job. So I couldn't, you know, I really didn't have a lot of time or experience or knowledge to build up a local team at that point remotely. And I realized that turnkeys can actually be a great, you know, vehicle to help me get started with real estate, buy a few properties, start generating that cash flow and, you know, then go from there. And that's actually what I did. If you remember, you know, when we connected, you helped me and my wife buy four properties within a span of about a year and a half in Atlanta, Georgia, and then several in Birmingham, Alabama. 
Right. So these were kind of my first few properties that I actually bought myself, you know, in addition to the condo that I inherited from my parents. And these were my first real investments. And they were all out of state. And, you know, what really helped me is I had a lot of experience with remote property management. And I was able to use that to, you know, basically make it a very effective operation after I bought them and was able to effectively manage them. And I actually still own all those properties today and they produce great cash flow. So I had, you know, great success with with buying those few properties. Fantastic. Yeah. So that was, I guess, my starting point, you know, and after I bought those few properties, I, you know, continued looking at real estate and kept building on my portfolio. I eventually moved uh, sort of away from buying turnkey properties as I had more experience and more connections. And more recently, I started buying multifamily properties, uh, kind of four plus units in actually Kansas City, Missouri. And, uh, you know, over time, over the last four or so years, me and my wife have built up to a total of 35 rental units, like you said, and the interest spread out across four states. Mm -hmm. Great story. So you became an accidental landlord is effectively what happened when you inherited that condo. So you jumped in willingly or not into real estate investing, although it wasn't necessarily the best market to be in. By the way, thank you for your service. I forgot to mention that. Sure. So, you know, you could have started anywhere. You could have taken a more active approach in wholesale properties or purchase distressed properties to rehab them and then flip them or rehab them and just hold them yourself and build your portfolio that way. You didn't. Why did you choose to buy more passive rental properties or even, you know, where you started turnkey rental properties? Sure. So I know, you know, once you start reading online, real estate has a lot of different ways you can start investing. Like you mentioned, a lot of people are successful with wholesale deals, flipping, kind of doing VRRR deals, you know, or advanced rehabs. When I initially was reading all the material available, I kind of absorbed all these different strategies. And I guess long term buy and hold method fit, you know, with my risk tolerance with what I wanted to accomplish better better than anything. And uh, the reason for that is I was looking for a long-term investment solution that would generate me cash flow, specifically, you know, more or less passive cash flow and eventually enable me and my wife to retire or, you know, at least quit our full-time jobs and live off our passive income. So the rental strategy fit the most into that plan. You know, I looked at flipping homes, you know, that and actually wholesaling to me seemed uh, more like a job, if you will. Right. It's something that, you know, you have to keep going and keep going with it. And if you're doing it and you're doing well, it's generating you income. But, you know, when you stop, the income kind of stops. So I already, you know, had my full time job that, that I worked and I was happy with. So I wasn't necessarily looking for a new avenue to add to my, you know, income stream that I have to work for. I was specifically looking for passive income for a long term you know, assets that would generate this income for years and decades to come. So that's why I chose rental properties. And as far as turnkeys, again, you know, in my situation where, you know, I had some money to invest, but, you know, kind of not a lot. So my local market was not necessarily a good fit for me. And at the same time, I had pretty much no experience actually finding deals and buying properties and going through that whole process. And I definitely didn't have local teams and all these other markets to do extensive rehabs. And frankly, I didn't feel comfortable with that. I read a lot of kind of stories of uh, rehabs gone bad, if you will. And kind of it makes sense that it's something that 
probably you shouldn't jump in head first, you know, unless you have some prior experience, maybe doing flips yourself, or you truly have an excellent team on the ground that you trust and that can do a quality rehab for you. So given that I didn't have any of those, kind of the turnkey model, you know, fit perfectly. It's, uh, you know, I was able to buy uh, really great houses in good areas with good cash flow with basically minimal work required on my part, other than find the neighborhood, find the actual house, run my cash flow projections. But I basically skipped the whole rehab component and the risks associated with that. Uh, granted, you pay a little price for that, whereas, you know, you're basically buying the properties at around market value. So you're not able to get a deep discount into that. But at the time, I felt like that was a good way for me to get started. Right. Very well said. A lot of people take this approach when they lack the time necessary to put towards an active model, an active approach where you're remotely managing a crew of people, even if it's local, but just to find a distressed property that you can acquire, fix it up, do it under budget and get it done in a reasonable amount of time where you could put it back on the market and hopefully have some equity in it. And But even if you don't, you know, just to have a portfolio or build a portfolio that is performing and generating income. But it's not just the time. It's also the experience. A lot of people don't have experience and that's why they choose this route. A lot of people just really don't want the brain damage. They just prefer to build a portfolio as passively and as hassle-free as possible. And I think that is ultimately what you did in the beginning. And then as you gained more experience and of course you had the luxury of having that quote unquote extra time on your hands, you were able to take a more active role, not entirely a full on active role of being a a full-time or professional rehabber, but you were able to be more involved as you built it up. But that segues to, you know, the whole topic of markets. Markets are very important as we all know, and that's really the starting point. It's the top of my funnel, if you will. And investors often don't know where to start. How did you pick the market. I kind of know the answer to this question, by the way, but how did you pick the market to invest in? What was your starting point other than having the conversation with me, of course? Yep. I actually was just going to say that, but no, I think it's a very valid question. And in fact, you know, what I've seen kind of talking with a lot of other investors, they're so eager to start looking at actual properties, running the cash flow numbers, they almost ignore the market piece completely. But actually that will, in my experience, have a significant and maybe even a prevailing impact on the returns and cash flow that you will get long term. So picking, you know, the right market or at least a market that fits with what you're looking for is extremely crucial. So basically the way I went about it is I first set a series of goals or expectations or criteria, if you will, as far as what I'm looking for. And for me, price point was a big consideration. Again, I had some money to invest, but not a lot. So I was looking at markets that were basically below a 100,000 purchase price point where I could buy, you know, quality investment properties for, you know, 50, 75,000. That was one of my criteria. So right off the bat, that limited a lot of markets, you know, especially areas like California or, you know, kind of some of the higher value East Coast areas from that list. Then following that, I kind of looked at what am I looking for in a rental property? And to me, it has always been a strong cash flow. You know, some investors like the appreciation aspect and they tend to gravitate towards more, you know, cyclical markets, even again, like California or other coastal areas where, you know, if you buy at the right time, yes, the property can appreciate significantly in just a few years. And maybe you can get lucky and sell and kind of make your money. I wasn't looking for something like that. Again, I was looking for a long-term investment 
that would generate consistent passive income. And with that mindset, the equity, you know, and the price appreciation becomes almost a secondary goal. You know, I never actually plan to sell any of these properties or at least not in any, you know, foreseeable future. So what the property price did is actually almost irrelevant to me. You know, it's, it's great when you get appreciation, but I was focused more on the cash flow. So that was a big consideration into my market search. And again, that pretty much eliminated coastal areas that tend to be a lot more cyclical and, you know, you can buy at the wrong time, kind of at the peak of the market and negatively affect your cash flow and, and cap rate and returns, obviously. So. I gravitated more towards the middle of America, and that's kind of why I picked Atlanta and Birmingham initially, and more recently, Kansas City. They tend to be, you know, very strong markets as far as economics and demographics are concerned. And those are the factors that I always look at. You know, I like cities that have a diverse job sector that are not dependent on a single industry. Growing population, you know, kind of a sign that the city is doing well. People want to move there. Obviously goes hand in hand with the jobs. And at the same time that, you know, the prices are somewhat low, the cash flow is good. So your cap rates and the, you know, the cash on cash returns that you get uh, can be fairly high. And yeah, so I think those, uh, you know, there were some other minor considerations like whether I due to kind of increased uh, maintenance costs associated with having a property in a very rough climate, maybe like north parts of America where there's heavy snowstorms that would do more wear and tear on your roof and outer structures. And at the same time, I didn't really like super hot areas like maybe Phoenix where it's so hot that Again, that could potentially add, you know, more wear and tear. So I picked more milder climates and, you know, I kind of put all that together. I did had several conversations with you and you were extremely helpful in kind of educating me on the cyclical versus linear markets and the differences in cash flow and price appreciation. And combined with all of that together, I was able to kind of narrow it down to basically just a few cities and ultimately settled on Atlanta, Birmingham, and more recently Kansas City as they just better fit all of my combined criteria for a market. Right. I think it's important to point out for the people listening today that these properties you purchased between fifty and seventy-five, eighty thousand dollars back then was four years ago. And so although those properties were, you know, purchased in decent neighborhoods, today those seventy-five thousand dollar properties are hard to find and you can't get them. They're not worth seventy-five thousand anymore. They've appreciated. So what you're talking about in terms of purchase price as of four years ago is a different story today. Today, you're looking at more like 90 to $100,000 properties. Again, it depends on the market, but absolutely. You know, I just want to keep things in perspective. Today, we as a company don't really like selling anything under seventy dollars to $75,000, not just because property values have appreciated, but because we don't like to lean into the C-class neighborhoods like other people Um like to do or other providers like to sell. I personally have a preference for, you know, the upper B class neighborhoods and, and maybe the A minus type neighborhoods. That's my personal preference. That's, you know, a very good observation about the neighborhoods. I, uh, you know, over time I did also develop a strategy where I basically like the middle of the market. So I tend to avoid the, you know, the super nice and kind of super desirable neighborhoods. Because just the prices there tend to be overvalued because of the homeowners wanting to buy the houses. So you, you tend to see higher prices there. You know, probably better tenant quality if you did end up buying a property there. But I just didn't find that returns in those areas really justify themselves. And at the same time, like you pointed out, I also avoid C areas 
pretty much entirely. You know, basically, you know, yes, the cash flow can be great. You know, the houses are cheap, but the tenant quality tends to degrade so much that you just start having recurring problems, you know, missed rent payments, late payments, tenants literally just skipping town, you know, leaving your property and you don't find out until the next month that they did so. So I think that, you know, I would kind of agree with you as I prefer those kind of B, B plus areas as the bread and butter of, you know, buy and hold investing where you get the best combination of you know prices meaning they're fairly reasonable but at the same time you get really good returns and good tenant quality yeah and yeah exactly and i wanted to bring that up because it's important to point it out the other comment i'll make which is just piggybacking on what you were saying on on these c-class neighborhood properties you know it's not so much the cash flow but the cash on cash returns and the overall rates of return i take that back it's the cash on cash return and the cap rates that look very attractive and it is to some degree what seduces investors to look at those properties as being more attractive it's not that the cash flow is better it's the cash on cash returns and cap rates that are more appealing. Your cash flow is actually higher in dollar terms when you get up to these hundred dollars to $150,000 properties that are in better neighborhoods because in dollar terms, you're making, roughly speaking, about 1% of the purchase price. So $130,000 property is going to rent for or $1,300 a month, maybe $1,250, maybe $1,200. So what your net cash flow is in dollar terms is better than buying that fifty or sixty thousand dollar property. It's actually higher. But your cap rate and your cash on cash return might be lower. So it's important to differentiate these two things. If you're focused on cash flow, the numbers are better on the more expensive properties. The cash on cash return is often higher on paper in the lower end properties, the lower end neighborhoods. But to your point about the types of tenants that you're dealing with, that demographic, potential problems, the higher anecdotally speaking, the higher turnover, you know, that eats into your annual cash flow. So what might look good on paper at the end of the year might not be so good because you have these ongoing problems. And that's not true all the time. And it's not true for everybody and certainly wasn't true for you. I don't think in the beginning, you know, being in a $50,000 property. But again, I bring it up because I want people to be aware of what they're looking at when they're comparing lower priced properties in C neighborhoods versus B neighborhoods versus A neighborhoods. Absolutely would agree with you. And I think a big part of that really comes down to having realistic expectations yeah. at the beginning. You know, a lot of times, you know, especially kind of the, the turnkey providers that operate in very, you know, lower end neighborhoods like C areas that you mentioned, you know, they'll list still a 5% vacancy and something like, you know, 5, 8% maintenance. But, you know, realistically, if you actually own properties in those areas, I think what you'll find out is the vacancies are just going to be a lot higher because of the late payments, because of kind of tenant issues, and then the increased kind of turnover and lease-up times that you have if your tenants are turning over more and more. And at the same time, you'll see your maintenance costs go up. So like you mentioned, the the cash-on-cash returns and cap rate may look attractive, but in fact, you know, I've seen it where it's, it's literally basically just inflated. It's presented in a way where an investor who is not familiar with the area would be attracted to, to just the actual numbers and returns. But if you speak with somebody who either owns property there or lives there or kind of has previous experience owning those types of properties in those areas, you'll, you know, basically realize that 
you know, it's just unrealistic. The cash on cash or other projections listed are basically almost false, you can call them. But, you know, it, it's projections. So you have to take them with a grain of salt. And I think one other thing that really helped me along my way is being very conservative with my cash flow estimates. You know, I always kind of ran the projections myself. I know that a lot of turnkey providers and even just traditional sellers that want to give you some sort of, uh, you know, operating statement or, or returns that you should expect. You know, I look at that, but I don't take that, you know, and just run with it. I, I always like to run my own cash flow projections using my own estimates that I think make sense for the area, the type of neighborhood, the property, and, you know, the age of the house, for example. So if, you know, if it's a house built before 1950, I know that it's going to have, you know, realistically, it's going to have more maintenance, just ongoing maintenance costs than a house built in 2000. You know, as houses age, systems degrade, it's just part of the, you know, it's part of the real estate investing yeah. game, if you will. And at the same time, you know, a house in an A plus area is likely going to have very small vacancies, whereas a house in the C area will probably have, you know, longer vacancies and your tenants will turn over. So you'll have more downtime. So I think for, you know, any investor, it doesn't matter which market or which property types, uh, you know, they're focusing on, you know, running the cash flow projections yourself in a way that you can actually explain it to somebody. That's kind of the you know, the basis that I went with, you know, if I'm putting some numbers down on a piece of paper and using them to estimate my returns, I should be able to explain every number to myself or, you know, to another person if, if they were next to me, even if I was alone. You know, if I'm putting 5% for vacancy, I should be able to justify that. Or maybe it should be 10. You know, I may find that out once I actually start thinking about it. But what this basically allowed me to do is have very realistic expectations going forward. And frankly, I just wasn't disappointed. I think, you know, I save all of those projections, if you will, that I make, and then I compare them to my actual returns that I get years later. And I can honestly say, I don't think there was a case where, you know, the actual returns were worse than I projected. In fact, you know, it usually works out to where the actual returns are much better. And that's fine with me. I would rather be pleasantly surprised or impressed with the performance of my rental properties than basically be disappointed or get stuck with a property that's, you know, a, a cash drain for me every month because of yeah, ongoing issues. Well said, well said. And one of the takeaways here is that as you get into properties in lesser quality neighborhoods, you know, as you approach like B minus and into the C's, what you want to do is bump up your vacancy allowance, whatever you're factoring in there, as well as your maintenance and repairs, because you can expect that those numbers are going to be higher. And if they're not great, you're pleasantly surprised, as you said. But in case that is true, then you've prepared for it, you've budgeted for it, and your projections are going to be closer to your actuals. So I think that's a, an important point and a key takeaway here. So let's talk about properties for a second here. You know, everyone has a different criterion when it comes to choosing property specifically. Did you have a criteria in the beginning or what was your criteria for choosing your properties? I mean, you talked, you touched upon this, but did you have a criteria right from the get go? I definitely did. You know, my criteria, I'd say, evolved somewhat over the years, kind of based on where I was in my real estate trajectory and how much funds I had available. But I always had criteria. You know, I found that, you know, when I first started looking at turnkey properties that back in the day you had on your website and other turnkey providers, you know, it was somewhat overwhelming the amount of potential investments you can make. So very early on, I developed a set of criteria that, you know, not only kind of steered me in the right direction. So I ended up with a property that I was happy with, but frankly, just helped me narrow down 
you know, the available selections. I, I'm kind of an analytical person and I had to have some, you know, way to narrow down my choices. I couldn't just, you know, pick this one because I like the pictures or something or pick the one with the highest returns. So I always had a criteria. I think at the beginning, it uh, definitely revolved around property price. So I, you know, I had a limited amount of cash to invest so that right off the bat limited, you know, my, you know, I was using financing. So using the 20% down kind of conventional financing that I was uh, going to get, I immediately limited my purchase price. And back then it was less than a hundred thousand was my range. And then on top of that, I had several additional criteria. One being the property age. I really did not feel comfortable buying turn of the century homes or homes older than, you know, about 75 years. And I wanted actually 1950 plus, you know, age built in 1950 or later was, you know, one of my target criteria. Just so I was not stuck with a property that was so old, it was going to have just so many additional problems. Then on top of that, I was very picky on the, well, not very picky, but I was fairly picky on the layout of the actual homes. You know, once you start looking at the pictures and the floor plans, you realize that there's all kinds of homes out there and some are just built very poorly. And it may seem kind of insignificant for an investor, you know, like, well, who cares? You know, I'm Mm -hmm. not going to live there. But actually what I found is, you know, to get a home rented, you know, when you're actually trying to rent it and tenants are looking through your property, that's that's what they see. They see your property. You know, they're going to look at the layout. They're going to look at how many bedrooms it has. And you have to cater to your tenants. They are your customers. And if you buy a property that looks great and potential cash flow is great, but, you know, you're having a hard time renting it out because, you know, it's either, you know, too small for kind of the area, you know, if it's a one bedroom place and most people locally are families, your potential tenant base is going to be a lot smaller. Or if, you know, you walk into the kitchen and it's just so poorly laid out that most people are going right. to walk right out, you know, you're if effectively long term, your, your vacancies again are going to be higher. Your income is going to be lower. Your returns are going to be lower. So I focused on, you know, buying a property that I would potentially live in. You know, maybe it wasn't my ideal place, but if I had to, you know, I'd live in it. It was functional. It fit in well with the neighborhood. And, you know, obviously the final criteria was the cash flow and the cash on cash returns. I think back in the day, I set a minimum cash flow of 150. Uh, per, per property. I, I would not buy a property, uh, less than that. And my cap rate range was around, uh, you know, I believe seven, eight percent plus. And that's using my very conservative estimates again, because I've seen a lot of properties advertised for, you know, 10, 12 percent cap rate. But then when I use my more conservative projections, they were came out to about six, seven percent. So I think between those criteria, um, you know, I was able to narrow the list down pretty well that eventually obviously allowed me to buy uh, some of those properties. And going forward, you know, as I was building my portfolio, you know, in more recent times, I always, you know, have a property criteria is in fact pretty specific. Um, And it still includes, you know, property age. I'm still big on that. The purchase price, you know, my max purchase price varies depending on the available cash I have right now. But some of those things like having a functional layout and number of bedrooms, bathrooms that fit well in the target area that would appeal to the most tenants, you know, I still keep today. And I think they're basically universal 
criteria that any investor would benefit from. Yeah, that's great. I'm glad you have a criteria and we always encourage investors to put a criteria together and we actually hold their hand and walk them through that process of building that criteria because sometimes they really just don't know. But I would add one more thing that is really more of my personal preference than anything else to the list you just gave. And it might sound a little superficial, but I like to look at the curb appeal of the property and how it presents itself when you first look at a photo or you drive up to that property because what's going to happen is whether it's a retail purchaser or you have a tenant that pulls up to a property looking at it for the very first time, what you need to happen in between their ears is they need to get that feeling and sense that, oh, that looks like home. I feel comfortable with that. It's attractive. I could get used to driving up to this property every day coming back from work. So that curb appeal is an important factor for me. It's not a quantifiable item. It's more qualitative than quantitative. But for me, it plays into the equation when I look at a property. So, you know, just a little thing, but it's a little thing that certainly helps when it comes to leasing up the property or selling it down the road should you ever want to sell it. No, I think that's a great one. It goes hand in hand with kind of the layout and just the general look of the house. It's not necessarily something you you can point your finger at necessarily or write down the exact, you know, criteria that it should fit. But you're right. You know, it's ultimately you're trying to sell your property to a prospective tenant or perhaps somebody else who is buying it later down the road. And ultimately, if it, you know, if it looks like crap from the outside. Uh, and you know, not very well on the inside either. You're going to have a very hard time renting it or right. selling it. So as we come into the home stretch here, you know, we have two kinds of investors. I'm going to ask you for some advice if you have any. There are those people that are just getting started. I mean, literally, they're thinking about it, or they're getting ready to purchase their first investment property, or they're in the process. And and then of course, there's those people who have very small portfolios, but they're still you know relatively green. What advice would you give to new and small investors that are looking to grow and get going down the road where they have the momentum that you've had because they want to build up a larger portfolio, whether it's five or 10 or 20 or 50? Sure. So, um, you know, I've met all kinds of investors. Like you said, some are just starting out. Some have a lot more units and kind of throughout when I was first starting and I was talking to these people, one thing I realized is that to build any meaningful kind of cash flow, passive cash flow from real estate, you do need a lot of units. You know, unless maybe you're just sitting on a pile of cash and, you know, you buy properties without financing, which I think is kind of rare. You know, most of us are going to use financing. And when you actually work out the returns, you know, you're going to get a few hundred dollars per property per month. And then, you know, realistically, to if you want to retire on this income or if you want to live on the income, you need a lot of units. And that's why actually me and my wife, you know, kind of early in our real estate journey, we set a goal of that we want to have 50 units. We wanted to have 50 rental units. And, you know, that we kind of arrived at that number by working backwards from, okay, how much, you know, income we want per year and per month. And, you know, let's say an average uh, property yields us, you know, 250 you know, dollars per month. And then how many units do we need, basically? So we worked out to that number. And then that was kind of our goal. And I think it's very important for any real estate investor to come up with a goal of, 
you know, units that they realistically want and when they need them or want them by to have some sort of roadmap. You know, if, you, if you're just buying one rental property here, one rental property there, sure, you're getting some income, but I feel like it doesn't give you that kind of drive and that power that you will have if you do have a set goal. You know, if you say, you know, by age 40, I want to have 50 units and, you know, let's see where I'm at today and where do I need to be next year and so forth. So I guess that's my piece of advice. It's fairly general, you know, setting goals, but it really helped me to focus on where I need to be this year, how many properties properties do I need to buy this year? How many properties do I need to buy next year? And hold myself accountable to that. Yeah, well said. And a second piece of advice, just really quick, is, you know, there's a lot of real estate investors who use creative investing strategies and syndication and partners. And, you know, me and my wife, we didn't do any of that. We, it was always just me and her. And we kind of didn't get money from friends or family. We didn't partner up with somebody or do syndicate deals. So we did it more of a traditional approach, if you will, by just doing it yourself. And what really helped us is actually our, you know, finances outside of real estate. And by that, I mean, we basically, you know, we, we both have jobs, we both work, we try to maximize our income from other sources. And at the same time, we try to save as much money as possible, have a high savings rate, you know, live a frugal lifestyle. And that allows us to, you know, save up for those down payments that much quicker. So combining that with the all the cash flow that we get from rental properties, which we do not, you know, spend, we, we do not collect it. It basically just keeps itself in separate accounts. And then we add to it from our own income, from our full-time jobs constantly. And over time, that's what really powered our growth. You know, at the beginning, it was basically just our savings that were driving our new purchases, you know, but over time, as we own more rental properties, all the cash flow from them added up you know, added to our personal income, allowed us to buy properties much, much faster. It's basically like yeah, a, it's snowball, a snowball, you effect. know, it's, it's slow at first, right? You know, you buy one property a year, maybe you buy one property, then wait a few years. But over time, you know, after five, you know, six, seven years, you get to the point where, you know, now actually the cash flow that you get from your properties is a lot more than what you can actually save yourself. Yep. And that's what really powers your growth. And, you know, the key here is to be disciplined and consistent and kind of live that frugal lifestyle. Don't be tempted to just start collecting this passive income from the rental properties and spending it, but instead save it and use that to buy more and more units until you reach your goal, let's say those 50 units, and then you basically made it. So I think kind of keeping that trajectory very consistent, you know, having your eyes on the prize, if you will, and uh, really focusing on growing our portfolio instead of just starting to spend the income really helped yeah, us. And an another way to snowball the growth of your portfolio is to equity strip or refinance properties when you are equity rich on a property. Because if you can take that equity out, you can redeploy it into the purchase of more properties. And that is also a tax-free event if you do, do it the right way. And we can help you with that. Absolutely. And that's actually something we've in the last few years, you know, the properties that we purchased at the beginning that now appreciated in price, we basically are doing a round of refinances that allows us to, you know, keep our portfolio leveraged, pull some cash out of from our properties, yep. use that to buy more yep. units and just basically adds to the whole snowball and can allow you to build up a portfolio that much faster. Some people are probably wondering how you're financing these properties, especially when you've gotten past the 20 property mark, because you've clearly tapped out the number of conventional loans that you can get. So how are you financing it? Are you using portfolio lenders? Sure. It's a great question. And I actually, in the last two years, we start using commercial loans. 
So it's very true what you said, you know, after a certain point, be that, you know, five, 10 kind of varies depending on your financial situation. It's hard to get conventional loans. And we try to get them as much as we can because the terms tend to be better. But about two years, we basically tapped out. I did look at portfolio loans. We ultimately settled on commercial loans because we're looking at those bigger multifamily units. And I was able to establish relationships with some banks here in California that are still have actually really good terms and longer amortization periods. And basically anything going forward will likely be for us. Since we're focusing on those multifamily properties, we're financing them with commercial. I assume those are 25-year amortizations. They are. Yeah. So it's kind of the terms vary that we get. I was able to find a lender that has actually 10-year terms with up to 25-year amortization periods and, you know, interest rates that are still actually very competitive. So, you know, it's a much less regulated market, obviously, than conventional loans. And I think when you get to that point in your portfolio, it really makes sense to kind of look around at available financing options, talk to more established real estate investors, which is actually what I did and how I eventually found a few lenders that have uh, really good terms and kind of flexible to where they can actually even finance smaller multifamilies like duplexes and fourplexes with commercial loans, as long as title is in an LLC. So Nice. So just in wrapping up here, my last question, Anton, is this, you know, they say that experience is a great teacher. You know, most wisdom is gained by experiencing different things as compared to acquiring knowledge through schooling or just you know, any other mean. In looking back now in what you've accomplished over the last four years, what would you have done differently, if anything at all? I'm not sure if I would have done anything kind of fundamentally differently. I think I've definitely learned a lot of experience with being a landlord and managing a portfolio now that's, you know, that's rather big of 35 units. At the beginning, I used to spend a lot of time micromanaging properties myself. I would get, you know, really attached to a property and I wanted to see every statement, look at every maintenance request for every property. And, you know, if there was a slight something I didn't like, I would start calling my property manager and and asking a lot of questions. But I think long term that actually, you know, is not a viable strategy because as you build a larger and larger portfolio, you basically become the CEO, if you will, of your business. And I think it's more important to empower your property managers, you know, establish processes and guidelines and procedures that you guys both agree on. So that will help them operate, you know, in a way that you want, but at the same time, distance yourself from your portfolio. So, you know, with each additional unit that you purchase, you don't want to spend more and more of your time on it because, you know, what will happen is basically you won't have any time for anything else. And that was happening to me for a while until I took a step back and realized, you know, look, this is not scalable. This, you know, if we want to get to 50 units, I cannot spend all this time managing, you know, these things myself. So instead, I talked to my property managers, you know, I really hammered down on a you know, what things I care about, what things I don't really care about. And I basically taught them to be more effective at managing my properties and build that trust relationship where, you know, I trust them to do a lot of important decisions and handle leasing and maintenance and even renovations at this point without me. And basically that trust built over time. And I feel like a big impact. And that was me training them and kind of understanding, making sure they understand how I want things done. But at the same time, then after we did that training session or that explanation, 
I would leave them alone, you know, so they feel like, yes, you know, they know what they're doing. They have the power and just just let them do it, because ultimately that's what you're paying them for. And they're actually probably the most important member of your team. But you can't just go around micromanaging, you know, somebody. I'm sure none of us will like it if our bosses did it at work. And I don't think a property manager likes it if you do that as a real estate investor to them all the time. Right. Yeah. Great advice. I mean, it's important to set expectations right from the beginning because then you feel better about it and you're more comfortable with them. But you also probably have built up a level of trust with your property managers. So that improves the relationship. So that's great advice. You don't want to micromanage. You certainly want to supervise, not necessarily manage your managers, but certainly be on top of it. Great advice. Okay. So- you have a great app. I want you to just quickly share, you know, what your app is and where people can find it. And if, of course, you know, if you have anything else you want to mention, go ahead and mention that. But please share with our listeners how they can find your app. Sure. So like Marco said in the intro, you know, I'm the founder of DealCheck, which is basically, you know, a property analysis software that I initially built myself. And now it has grown to a big following of over 28,000 investors and real estate agents who use it daily to help them analyze rental property rehab projects, flips, commercial buildings, multifamily properties. And my kind of initial motivation for it was, again, I was really big on analyzing the cash flow projections and estimating property returns. I couldn't really find a good tool that I liked. I know there are some calculators out there. I wasn't really happy with them. I wasn't really happy using spreadsheets. So I built a mobile app that allowed you to run all of this analysis with just a few clicks right on your phone if you wanted to and kind of generate really good reports that you can send to your lenders, other investors, partners. We've grown quite a bit. We now actually have a web app as well. So you can use deal check on your computer, tablet, laptop, phone, whatever makes sense. All the data is synced across and you can try it free at dealcheck.io. So that deal check and then dot I and O. Perfect. And again, it's free to sign up. So I encourage everybody to give it a try. Great. And I'll put that in the show notes for everybody too. So Anton, great story. Congratulations on your success. You're rocking it here with 35 units and growing. I know you'll hit your 50 unit goal and, uh, you know, great story to inspire other people. So I appreciate you taking the time to come on the show today. Uh, thanks for having Marco again. I had a great time. And just again, thank you personally for all the help and advice that you provided me early on that played a big role in helping me get where I'm at today. You're very, very welcome. Thanks again. Thank you. I hope you found this interview with Anton to be inspirational and encouraging. The thing is, is you have everything you need to accomplish your goals already inside you. You just need to be really clear on what it is you want. Write it down, be specific, and create a roadmap or a plan for yourself. And if those tasks just seem too big, especially when you're just getting started and you don't actually have that momentum to move forward, take those tasks and break them into smaller chunks. Break them down into smaller bite-sized pieces because you'll find it easier to do some something small, simple, easy, and tiny than something that seems monumental at the time. And then as you keep doing that, you take one little bite after another bite after another bite, and you you start eating away at these tasks, you're going to find that you're not only going to build momentum, 
but you'll feel good about yourself and you all of a sudden will start to feel confident and you'll have that momentum and excitement to keep moving forward and you'll just plow through walls. So that's what Anton did. You know, he went from basically zero properties to 35 in four short years and he's well on his way to his goal of 50. So he's at a point now where I think he's financially free, but it's not the goal that he ultimately wants. He's happily working at his job, but I know that once him and his wife get to that 50 property goal, they might, you know, revisit what they're doing and maybe do something that they actually enjoy doing maybe more. Maybe they'll be full-time real estate investors and that's all they'll focus on. Who knows? But at least they'll have that time freedom. That financial freedom just leads to time freedom. So that's it for today. If you have any questions you want to ask me or my team, you can click the Ask Marco link at the top of the website and submit your questions to me. I'm going to be doing an episode with listener questions here soon. So just go to PassiveRealEstateInvesting.com, click Ask Marco and submit that over to me. If you haven't subscribed to this show, go ahead and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, wherever that may be. And while you're there, help us spread the word. We try to put out you know, good content and share good stories and good interviews. And you can do that by going to iTunes and leaving us a rating and review. We really greatly appreciate that. And it really does help pass this message along because people see that and they read it. That's about it. So thanks for listening, and I look forward to having you on our next episode. Are you looking for a roadmap to financial freedom? If so, we have a solution for you. Narada Real Estate is offering a limited number of free strategy sessions to help you get out of the rat race. Learn how you can create wealth and build monthly passive income. To set up a time with one of our knowledgeable investment counselors, simply go to naradarealestate.com. That's N-O-R-A-D-A realestate.com. Nothing on this show should be considered specific personal or professional advice. Please consult an appropriate legal, tax, real estate, or business professional for individualized advice. For distribution or publication rights in media interviews, please contact the host.